Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a new set of guests have checked in to explore love, conflict, and death. We'll talk about season two of HBO's The White Lotus. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. So I got bumped down to the number two spot at the Water Street Bookstore for oh. the month of November. Oh, no. But it was by Michelle Obama, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, she does have those arms. She can push you down with those arms. <laughs> and finally, our captain of all things cynical, author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Okay, so Kevin, this is obviously Monday's fine program. Yep. What is coming up on Thursday's show? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the new podcast, Infamous Girls Gone Wild. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. Which is not about the two of you girls. No, unfortunately. Because you just can't. Yes. Yeah, so even Lara is like rolling I'm around. Dancing. She's dancing. I'm dancing over here. Woo! Yeah. Lara's gone wild. She's gone wild. <laughs> I just got to say, the $700 a month Patreon level would get the discussion we had oh my God. before we started recording. <laughs> there should be a one-time, is it possible to do like a one-time thing on Patreon where you give, you give like a one-time thing and you get access to like a one thing? Because legit, <laughs> we could have like one dishy, like no phones allowed Zoom situation. <laughs> You'd be like the champagne room. Of quite our, literally of like our podcast, like it would be because I am living so vicariously uh, right now, and I just I have so many questions for Laura Breaker. It's incredible. All right, so Kevin, I just really want to get to what we're talking about in this podcast. So would you mind it if I just cut the chit chat short and just play that first clip? You know, uh, you are the host, so you can just stop talking whenever you want Got to. That power, I always forget. I'm going to get that done. Leading off, don't blame the patriarchy. <laughs> the hotel's perfect, and the staff is excellent. The food is amazing. I've heard, and the wine. I mean, we are so excited. Italy's just so romantic. Oh, you're going to die. We're going to have to drag you out of here. <laughs> A new set of wealthy guests have checked in to the White Lotus in Sicily, each with their own kind of baggage. 
They include Dominic DeGrasso with his father, Bert, and his son, Albie, who've come to seek out their Italian relatives. Hopefully, um, we can find some people there who can speak English, you know, maybe help us track down some distant relatives, because we definitely don't speak Italian. Oh, you should come, Isabella. You could be our translator. We need you. Dad, hmm? leave her alone. Cameron and Daphne and Ethan and Harper are on a couple's vacation. But recently having come into money, Harper is suspicious of her husband's old college roommate. Also, they're so touchy-feely, right? Like, do you notice that? Feels performative. Like, who does that? Happily married couples? Couples that have been married for five years? No way. It feels fake. We're so quick to judge people. Yeah, people that brag about taking helicopters to the Hamptons and being friends with Jeff Bezos. And returning is quirky heiress Tanya McCoy, accompanied by her husband and her new assistant. He's not supposed to know she dragged along. Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time. Always. And you are in our blossom circle. So you are very important to us. Mm. But I was a petal and I've worked my way up to blossom. Winner of 10 Emmy Awards, The White Lotus returns to HBO for a second season. Set in a Mediterranean paradise, the hotel staff attempts to cater to the needs of their guests, who are slowly coming undone. This character study asks the questions, whose relationships will survive, what it means to be a modern man, what happiness can money buy, and which of those guests was found dead in the water at the end of their vacation. Spoiler alert! We have not seen Sunday's finale of The White Lotus as of this taping, but we will be talking about the rest of the season. So if you want to remain spoiler-free up to the finale, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Now, Kevin, I can't help but think having not seen the finale might sound real stupid. Like we did with The Patient? (laughs) In some of this taping. Well, we get to show like our own imaginations without being, you know. um, That's true. Yeah, anyway. Okay, so Kevin, what do you think of the premise of this show? Because they started the season with the same way they started last season. The opening scene arriving of by a boat, body. And yeah. Oh, the body. Yeah. Yes. Um, sort of saying like somebody dies, except we know this time it's more than one person who dies, and we don't know who it is. What do you think of that setup? Yeah, I like it because it sets up the stakes, so we know something is going to happen at the end. But I'm like, it's not like a parlor mystery because. I mean, there aren't any clues to who the victim could be. So it's just like a wild ass guess. You know, there aren't any real clues, although I think there may be one uh, that comes along. You know, so quite literally, that could be anybody. But I'd say now at this point in the season, all those chess pieces are in place. So with our different groups, they are in a situation where you can see someone being killed or murdered or dying or whatever. So everything is in place to make that payoff seem uh, believable. Yeah. So, Toby, what do you think? Because I, reading through your notes, get the sense, and I'll just say it, you have a very different impression of the show than I do. So this is definitely a similar setup as last time. They bring a bunch of people together, and there is, I think, it's pretty well decided that season one was very much about wealth and white privilege. And it is very well decided, uh, at least for me and for a lot of people watching the show, that season two is very much about wealth and toxic masculinity. Um, do you think that the prevailing setup of bringing in a series of characters across generations uh, in sets of like family units is working again in uh, as, as a repetition of a format? 
maybe I don't know. I don't think this is as good as the first season. I I feel like like I guess I hadn't really heard about this thing being about toxic masculinity. I don't think the male characters are very well drawn. I don't think they're very interesting. If they're basically there to be symbols of toxic masculinity, that then the women who I think are a lot better written for them to kind of play off of in, in, in what it's really about is how women respond to that. Like maybe, I guess like I'll be interested to see what happens in these things. But I, I feel like these, these sort of little pods of people who are going around that we're watching like the three generations of, uh, you know, Dominic and Albie and the grandfather, they seem more like they're almost like thesis statements about the different generations rather than like actual characters in and of themselves. Like they don't really do anything that deviates at all from this idea that they're of a certain generation with that generation's outlook towards women, which kind of sort of prevents them from being like actual people. So I don't know. I I didn't feel like this was as well written. Again, I hadn't seen anything about the toxic masculinity aspect of things, but I was trying to get a handle on where are they going with this? And I, and I, and I kind of, I guess, was focused more on it being about women trying to navigate opportunities that they have. But I could be, I guess I'm, I'm in the minority on that. Well, you might not be. Maybe it's about that, too. I mean, this is definitely my interpretation. I'm not the only one with the interpretation, but it's certainly mine. And I think that the three generations of men family is one of the ways that's playing out. Like, I will just say. You think DeGrasso is, like, supposed to be gross. Kevin and I have very different feelings about Albie, for instance. <laughs> I would be so ashamed of him if he were my son. I hate Albie so much. He's um, so obnoxious. <laughs> I Are think we he's going on the bitch now? slap Albie. He is the worst of that family, period, uh, in my opinion. Anyway, what do you think? I'm curious to know, what do you think of the DeGrasso family, Lar? Because that, that intergenerational play, grandfather, father, son, first of all, how many people in Sicily get douchebag Americans knocking on their doors saying, I think we're related. It must happen all the fucking yes. time, right? I just yes. like, so embarrassed yeah. uh, for my people. Like, like, I'm so sorry on behalf of all my people for every, everyone in Sicily who has like a, a, completely like their lives intruded on in that way. Anyway, what do you think of DeGrasso's and like that interplay and that family dynamic? Well, I mean, in the beginning, it's pretty entertaining. Obviously, you know, the grandfather is, you know, they're sitting at eating and he's just like totally just talking about penis this, penis that. I mean, and you're like, whoa. And, you know, and then the grandson like comes in. Well, do do you still get it up? Do you still like jerk off? Doctors say you need to release once a day. Otherwise you get backed up. Wait a second. Doctors say you need to jerk off once a day. That's right. Which doctors say that? You need to drain the sack. So again, right from the get-go, it's like sex is everywhere in this show and in this family in particular, that's the central theme. But, you know, it's like you were saying, there's like these three generations and you can see the evolving attitude toward sex and toward women and toward consent and toward how we deal with that. And, you know, we've got the guy from The Sopranos there. Um, was he any Christopher Michael in the Sopranos? Michael Imperioli, yes. 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 Um, Christopher. Who plays his, you know, his role perfectly. Like to him, it's just like, you know, sex, that's it. There's nothing else. And then Albie, I just, that guy drives me fucking nuts. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like just want to like smack him. Um, so he has gone to the other extreme where he is just so mild and so conscientious 
that there's like no masculinity left there. Is he though? Um, Has he gone there? Because he's also extremely, he cannot go a day without having sex with somebody. The minute a woman that he desires, like does not have interest in him, he immediately has to go have sex with somebody else. It's disgusting. Albie? Yes. Did I miss him having sex with someone besides the girl, the uh, yes. sex worker? Yeah, no, you know, no. you didn't. Because Parsha you rejected didn't. him. And the minute she rejects him, he's got to like, oh, immediately okay. have, have somebody else in the frame. Like he just can't like not be oh, okay. adored for a minute. Like it's like so gross to me. I, and he, But he's espousing all these virtuous yeah. values to his dad. He's like, dad, you're disgusting. Dad, you can't be alone. Dad, you're this. And he just... He's like the same. It's so he, gross but to me. I think I, I I think maybe what it was is I'm watching like his like totally vanilla boring sex and I'm like, uh, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> like missionary position when you've got uh, somebody that clearly uh, knows, knows what, what she's doing. doing. Yeah. <laughs> really? Really, Albie? <laughs> and that's why Lara would be ashamed of him if he were her son. Yeah. <laughs> But can I jump in? Because we we had this discussion once, and then we had people over, we had the discussion again. And it's like, I think Al, I mean, we will always want these characters to do something. We want them to have it to travel in an arc and change and, and whatever, right? And so you have to have some people who come in, we'll just call them the good guys, nice guys, and you got a bunch of guys who come in and they're like the douchebags. So what has to happen at some point is that some of the nice guys have to break bad and some of the douchebags have to kind of like look for redemption. Maybe they get it, maybe they don't. But I think Albie comes in kind of as of those three of them, the nice guy. He's the one who's talking the talk about, you know, consent and the patriarchy. And if you remember that scene at the, you know, at the Godfather set, which like thematically couldn't be any more obvious. He's the nice guy. He's calling out his father and his grandfather for being chauvinists. But like when he starts being faced in real life with certain situations, he starts to creep over the other way. Unlike, I think, Michael Imperioli's character, Dominic, who I really like, who kind of seems like he at first he's like not doing anything with his wife. And he like he doesn't get why she's really mad at him. And as he goes along, he starts to feel a little more like he wants that redemption. He sees he's walking on the beach, he sees couples, he's kind of rethinking his position. And I think the best scene in the entire series is when he and his father, played by F. Murray Abraham, are having dinner without Albie, and he confronts him. I don't blame you for my situation, but I sure fucking could, because you never showed me how to love a woman. You never... Show me how to be intimate. You never show me how to put others first. You always put yourself first. Always. So I did the same thing. I loved your mother. And she loved me. It's not that simple. Yes, it is. And it's a little self-confessional, and he, like, takes some of the, the blame himself. But as far as this discussion about, I learned this from you, and now I'm teaching it to my son, and I want to change all that. That was the point where he said, okay, I get what the theme of this season is. Hmm. So, Toby, there's a parallel scene that's actually not far removed from that in the show where Tanya talks to Portia and sort of compares herself to her and says, you remind me of me when I was a child. By the way, somebody posted on Twitter uh, a photo of young Jennifer Coolidge next to the actress who plays Portia. They look 
exactly the same. Young Jennifer Coolidge, the actress who plays Portia. It's wild. So I don't know if that casting, how intentional that was uh, and how intentional that line was. But you wrote a note about how you think the generational stuff does not work as well as it did in season one. Yeah, I think the Tanya and Portia thing is probably the closest you get to some kind of intergenerational stuff the way that season one did in that the interaction is fairly limited and there is a definitely a hierarchy, like one's a boss, one's the employee or whatever. But, you know, I think Tanya feels some responsibility for her. And I think one of the interesting things about Tanya as a character, although she kind of wears on me after a while, is she could be fairly clear eyed about people who she isn't like super emotionally wrapped up in. So I think she says at one point, like, stay away from, uh, you know, emotionally unavailable men based on Tanya's general abilities to have insight about anything like that's like a revelation uh, because she's absolutely if she has any sort of emotional stake in it is completely unable to distinguish anything about anything and just becomes a basket case immediately. So I think that's kind of what makes her an interesting character, right, is that she can function highly in some ways and then in other ways to can't do it at all. And those two ways can be very close to each other with just one twist. But I did, I, I did feel like it did miss these kind of two tracks of things going on where like the kids are up to one thing and the adults are up to another and they're following somewhat parallel tracks and they kind of affect each other. But for the most part, they're living in their own worlds. That doesn't really happen in this one. And it doesn't have to happen in every, you know, season of every show or whatever. But I just think if you're comparing the two, I felt like that part was kind of lost Mm. in this one. And I think the things that kind of replaced it, at least to me, aren't as compelling. I love the scene, Laura, with Tanya and Portia together after um, Tanya sees Jack uh, having sex with his quote uncle and doesn't tell Portia. It's like the first moment of like genuine kindness we see Tanya have and not telling her that and like trying to like have a different kind of conversation with her. And she's like, I don't think he's, I don't think he's his uncle. His uncle. (laughs) He's his uncle. Maybe you should slow down with this guy. Why? Something about his relationship with his uncle. What about it? I don't think it's his uncle. It is. How do you feel about Jennifer Coolidge as Tanya? I have to say, I love her. This is one of, I know there's been people who say, I don't know why she's here in the season. She's not needed. But I just find her so fun to watch as a comedic actress. I could watch her in anything. Her delivery and her demeanor to me are just always spot on in terms of capturing this character of Tanya. And she's just wacky. Like she comes in the beginning, she looks out over the balcony and she's like, what a beautiful view. I wonder if someone jumped or died here or something. And like, she just says it so deadpan when she does a line like that. And then, I mean, how can you not love the great Vespa scene where she's dressed up like Peppa Pig, like practically like (laughs) strangling her poor little husband to death as they're like going along on her uh, adventure there. But I did think she was, to me in this season, you know, obviously she's, she's in her own wacky world, but I feel like the character was less dramatic. And a little bit more, like we were just saying, Rebecca, tuned into other people in a way that she wasn't in the first season. 
she seems to kind of go with the flow a bit more. You know, she was obviously the first season very dramatic. She's got the mother's ashes. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of over the top. I am just waiting to like, and it's just, I just kept laughing. She's like, we're going with the gays and off they go on their like whirlwind tour. These are some um, rich gays. I know that was my favorite. <laughs> These are some rich gays. I was like, oh my God, I love this. And then like, actually they're not. So I am waiting. That actually is the storyline. I'm mo- I mean, who's who dies? I don't know. We'll see. But the storyline I'm really most interested in now is why the rich gays, besides the fact that they don't actually have any money, are taking her along and have literally adopted her because they're so sincere. It's a long about con. Them. Well, we'll, we'll it's talk about that. It's a long con. And I, think, I think it has to do with the young love and the unrequited love and the like broke back mountain thing that um, he referenced in yes. one of their earlier conversations. Right. Which and, is Greg, and Tanya's and husband. And the photo of Tanya's husband in their house. But we're going to talk about our predictions in a minute. And we will also talk about my girl, Harper Spiller, in a minute. Oh, yeah. But first, let's take a quick break, Kevin, because we got some business to do. Yeah, let's what do we have going on on our Patreon right now, Kevin? Well, right now on Patreon, you can listen to the Crime Writers on After Show. This week, we are going to play Fuck, Mary Kill with the uh, characters of White Lotus. Yes! Yeah. So, Toby's <laughs> eyes just went wide. I know. Toby, Toby's just like, kill, kill, kill. Kill, kill, kill. Oh my God. You got to marry this is one like of the them, Hunger Toby. the Games version <laughs> yeah. of. Uh, are, are we going to get, are you going to give us different sets of three? Like, you're no. going to be like, no, you have to. The whole well, thing is, you got to give, you can't, you can't fuck, about, marry, kill all of them. You have you to give us different sets of three. You can't set the rules. I am setting the rules. I mean, there's literally one rule for that game. You got to give us three people and you got to say, ba, ba, ba. Okay, got anyway, what two, else? Yeah. That's two rolls. Okay. Yeah, I, two like, rolls. I like when Kevin comes up with games for us, so That's I'm true. eagerly I'm sure awaiting this. All right, what else we got going on, Kevin? Well, I want to let you know on Wednesday, Toby will be recording his next episode of the Deep Dive Book Club podcast. If you're a member of Crime Writers on Nation, if you're a Crime Writers on Nation sponsor, you get to watch the live recording, put your comments in the chat. Sometimes Toby will even bring you on the screen, and you can be part of the podcast. Toby's guests are... Julia Lowry Henderson, Deb Shudica, and Shirley Lairo. And what book are you talking about, Toby? We are talking about The Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight, which is, I finally started reading it. It's actually, it's super interesting. It's about sort of an effort in like the 50s and 60s in England by a few people to try and figure out, do people actually have premonitions of bad things happening? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of about their actual efforts to do it and then sort of what people were thinking about, you know, ESP and time and spiritualism, all this stuff that kind of ties into it at the time. And I'm finding it very interesting. So it should be a good talk. We'll get your Aperol spritz and join Toby and his guests for the next deep dive. Also want to let our friends on Patreon to know that we are going to again do our Crime Writers on Patreon Christmas party. Our virtual party is going to be December 20th. Just join us on Patreon. We'll be on the Crowdcast. Well, folks, come on. You can tell us about the fake gift that you're bringing to our party. Bring your Aperol spritz, and we'll have a fun time. That's a holiday t- party, Kevin. We don't want to be just like oh, Christmas-centric. Okay, sure. <laughs> what, what time What time is that going to be, Kevin? That's going to be 8 o'clock Eastern time. Huh. Do I have to dress up? You don't have to I do anything. I didn't even come last year, right? I don't I'm going to wear my cat pants. All right. I'll come this time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you busted in. And oh, I think you, I did. I, yeah, think I, yeah. I think I was. I had a work thing, and then I just showed up. Oh yeah. Uh, right. Is that it, Kevin? Yeah, those ends. 
the business. All right, I'm going to fade that music out right now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. I can't let one more minute go by in this podcast without talking about Aubrey Plaza, a.k.a. Harper Spiller, uh, at her performance in this show. I'm going to be the life of the party from now on. Well, don't overdo it. They'll know it's fake. I love them. What? They're good friends. Oh, my God. What? You're scaring me. You don't think I can be lovely? Just watch. When Harper and Ethan first showed up, I had the thought that I often have when I see Aubrey Plaza in things, which is Aubrey Plaza is a little bit like, I don't know, Morgan Freeman, where it's Aubrey Plaza as Aubrey Plaza playing a character that I like. But it's essentially Aubrey Plaza, right? Um, Kevin, Aubrey Plaza has fucking layers in this show. Does she not? And is really showing herself to be a lot more than the Aubrey Plaza that we know from other, other Aubrey Plaza shit, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that in that pod, I, I think the real tension there is obviously between Cameron and Ethan, although Ethan and Harper have their own thing going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who would not want to have sex with that wife? I'm Come on. He well, just wants he, to like <laughs> run and whack it. Not at the same time. Yeah, he's quite literally running away from his, uh, his relationships. I don't know, right? Rebecca, you thought maybe he's asexual? Yeah. Not that it means anything, but they did give us a little peek at the porn he was going to look at, and it seemed pretty heteronormative. So who knows how that plays into things? But... It's funny because their relationship is in trouble in a different way than Cameron and Daphne's is. I did also enjoy the scene where, I mean, I was hoping to talk more about the guys because that's my perspective. But as far as the ladies go, I thought the scene where Daphne was essentially saying to Harper, the way you deal with the infidelity of your husband is to go out and find yourself a personal trainer. And then she says, she says like, here's, here's the photo of my trainer. And she's like, uh, the, those are photos of your kids. The message being, yeah, the father of my kid is the trainer. Go out and fuck a trainer. <laughs> and man, it's very different from the attitude that Ethan has when he becomes suspicious that Harper cheated on him. Harper forgives Ethan, takes his word for it, a little reluctantly, but I think sincerely. And now Ethan is starting to come undone 
with this idea that his wife has betrayed him and that fuck this guy who's my friend who's always doing that. There's the big dick energy I have to. But he doesn't even love his wife. That's the thing. He doesn't even want her anyway, which is wild. So weird. So here's the question I have because I don't think Cameron and Daphne's marriage is in trouble. I think their marriage is actually super fucking functional because when they're together, they're together and they have figured it out. Uh, Toby, you seem to agree with me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the whole that's half the arc, right? Is it starts off and you're like. Ethan and and Harper are sort of the functional couple and the others are just like nuts. And then it's like, well, actually, Ethan and Harper don't have some kind of understandings that these others do. And you might not agree with the understandings, but they work for them and they both know the rules and that's what keeps them going. And they they seem to enjoy their time together. My sense with Harper uh, and again, I, th- I think that the, the scene that Kevin was talking about where Daphne says, you know, you got to get yourself a trainer, you know, who knows if I'm right or not. But I I was kind of taking everything that happened kind of after they got back and after there's like this kind of ambiguity where Ethan won't tell Harper exactly what happened. And I think Harper's way of getting back at him is to provide some ambiguity for him to have to live with. So without actually crossing the line, she's just doing enough stuff to kind of drive him crazy and show him what it, what that feels like. And he's just like sort of constitutionally not really in a good situation to deal with that kind of thing because he's sort of, I don't know, overly sincere or nerdy or <laughs> whatever. Just too many endorphins from running. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I think that's this little part of it is like the most interesting part. Again, I kind of feel like all the characters are sort of this is the fun couple who've made some accommodations for each other so they can live their wild and crazy lives. And this is the kind of couple that you think is really functional, but in fact, they're repressing all this stuff and think they're sort of superior because they don't, they're not crazy, but it it just seems like there's a little more complication in what's going on with them than what's going on with any of these other things, which seem fairly, you know, it just seems like it's some of the comparisons are just too convenient. You know, I think one of the themes from the first season that carries over is this look at the ultra wealthy and how they live in this sort of bubble where they're oblivious to the rest of the world and don't have those same sort of empathetic emotions towards people that, you know, the rest of us might have. And and it was like in the first season, it was more like that, like upstairs, downstairs dynamic of like Downton Abbey, like here's the staff and here's the super rich people who don't even pay attention to the staff until, you know, oops, you're dead. You know, I think the irony is that from this, this foursome here, these two couples in the beginning were set up to like, believe that, oh, here's these people, this, this, you know, the first couple, and they are just so shallow. They don't even read the news. Like they don't know what's happening in the world. Like how ridiculous. And then you have this other couple that is like, reading whatever, the New Yorker, I don't know what they, but you know, and, and they seem to be a lot more tied into things, but actually they're the unhappy ones. And so I think it's taking another lens onto that dynamic of power and wealth and happiness and how these people are interacting in, you know, their, their regular bubble. And now this bubble of the white Lotus, which is, you know, 
Kind of like where Kevin and Rebecca vacation when they went to Mexico <laughs> to so, like the White Lotus. I do. So. I do. I have to tell you something. I love vacations. Obviously, that's what I, I'm not like. That's what we, when we spend money, that's what we spend money on is like traveling to places. I do love, I, I cannot afford any place like they go in the White Lotus. But I do love people watching on vacations and I do love meeting people on vacations because you do get to meet really interesting people and have like one week long, very intense relationships with them. And I... When I like power rank people, the White Lotus, it's like I'm power ranking the characters, but I'm also thinking about how I feel about people in real life. And I personally prefer someone like Cameron over someone like Ethan because Cameron shows you who the fuck he is. And while I would not want to be married to him, I would rather in my life have friends and be around people who show you who they are and are never shy about showing you who they are, and you're never wondering who they are, then people who are pretending to be one way, like Ethan and Albie, and like showing you something, Ethan is just like a simmering ball of rage. Like, it's just like going to explode at any moment. Like the minute he's challenged, it's just like completely falls apart. And so you walk on eggshells around people like that all the time. And I think Cameron and Daphne's relationship, obviously, she expressed that she had to make serious compromises, but they are very into each other <laughs> very clearly. And uh, Did you guys recognize Will Sharp, the actor who plays Ethan, as, as Rodney, the wrench boy from Gary Hodge? Yeah. It took me a while, but I finally figured it out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was yes. great in that. You think he's great in this? Yeah, he's great yeah. in this. And he has I was like, who some... is that guy? Who is that guy? He is in good shape. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's yeah. all that running. That's more all than that, running. Yeah. It's all that masturbating. All right. So, Kevin, uh, what is up with Mia and Lucia? What is the purpose they These serve? These fucking here? agents of chaos. <laughs> I, I love them. They're the only things really that creating any sort of action. Because this is, you know, a slow simmer and we are looking at sort of like these interpersonal relationships, but they're not setting fires as far as the story goes. So it's even, especially uh, Mia, she starts interacting with not only Dominic, but then Ethan and Cameron for their debauched, Molly filled night of uh, quasi passion. And now it's back with, with Albie. So, but she's now pushing Cameron for money, which is creating more yeah, tension. And Valentina keeps chasing him around the hotel. And it's just, they're funny, but they're also interesting because they are sort of the, um, what is agitating all of these other character dynamics, not not the Tanya and Portia one, but the other one. So they're the, the straw that is stirring the drink. Hmm. Well, I think what we should do, because we haven't seen the finale yet, we're going to sound real fucking stupid after we do this. Yeah. But I like doing <laughs> mm-hmm. it. Uh, we haven't seen the finale yet, but the list, many of the listeners who are listening to this will have seen the finale, and we will have to probably yep. by the time this comes out. I'd love um, for each of us just to say, what do we think is going to happen here? Like, what do we think? You can pick a plot point. doesn't have to be all of it. Who do you think is going to die? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, Laura, do you have any predictions for the finale? So in the first season, I hated that Jake Lacey character so much. Like that was why I wanted to die. In like, the plunge like, pool. Wait, I you mean, that, that, you mean guy. the guy that we literally saw in the first scene watching the body get loaded onto the plane? That was the one you wanted to die? Yes. I, I just <laughs> hated him. I hated him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this season, I don't feel like as much of a visceral reaction to any character that I just want to knock off. Although I have to say, as this is going on, Ethan, I wouldn't be sad to see him go at this point. He's kind of turned into a douchebag. 
And I'm curious to see how the plot point ties up with Portia and Tanya and the rich gays, the very rich gays, and how that might tie into Tanya's husband. And what is finally going to make Valentina crack out of this very focused, driven? I mean, we saw her get a little action in the last episode. Um, You know, maybe that's going to be the thing that finally helps her break free. But I'm curious to see you know, the staff and the staff reaction to the wealthy guests was such a big part of season one. I'm curious to see if that's something that's going to play out. Toby Ball, what about you? Any predictions for the White Lotus finale? I, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I, I assume that the whole setup with Tanya is that there's something to do with her prenup, that if she is unfaithful, that the prenup doesn't take hold or something. Yep. Yeah. Again, I, I think this is a lot of people probably think this. So I think that's going to happen as far as who dies. I I sort of, I was like Dominic or Valentina. I can't imagine they're just going to continually kill off the person who like runs the front desk at these white lotuses because nobody would ever want to work there and do that. Valentina find the body. So we know it's not Valentina. Oh, she did. I kind of forgot about that. (laughs) You know, if I, I would not put even a cent on my prediction on this stuff, but I would say Dominic as the person who dies and, you know, you could start whittling away the people it could be because, you know, Daphne's not going to run away freaking out like that if it was somebody who she actually knew. Um, right. I agree. So I, I think it really, really narrows it down. So I'm going to throw out Dominic and I think there's probably like a one in five chance that that's right. Well, we know there's more than one person. We oh, know there that. is? How oh, do yeah. Know that? They said there's another guest. They said there's. Oh, they said other guests. How many? A few. Oh, I missed that. Maybe it's not a guest. Maybe Albie finally stops being such a little whiny boo-boo and takes out the pimp. He's not a guest. I mean, I think there were two, actually three sort of bits of foreshadowing that may come into play. One is that if you recall in the first episode, when they get in the room, there's all these busts. They're like, what up with these statues? And the legend is that a guy was beheaded because he'd been cheating on his wife. And that's there. Ethan keeps looking at those statues. I predict one thing. Ethan is going to try to behead Cameron hmm. or something something similar. There's also the legend about it, that, that, that rock face. There's a house up there and that the old woman threw herself off of that. I think that is the drowned person that we see. I went back and looked. The legs looked kind of petite. I don't know if that means. I mean, I think that might fit. Tanya or Harper, but I'm not certain who that will be. And I think another person, I think that Bert is going to be dying of natural causes. He continues to fall down. He's got these, you know, bandages on his head. I think they're setting this up that he just has an aneurysm or something like that. He passes away, something like that. But yeah, I think if anyone's going to sort of be the martyr for the cause, that it would be Michael Imperioli's character, somebody who wants to be better, but for whatever reason can't. I think there's a plot point device reason why they made uh, Mia and Lucia be guests of the hotel registered to the rooms of Michael Imperioli and his father. I think one or both of them are going to die because uh, you see at the beginning, Valentina say guests of the hotel in a way that seems like 
with a sort of like face. So I think one or both of them is going to be one of the victims because they are, in fact, technically guests of the hotel. I actually think your uh, rock thing is actually a very good call. And I wouldn't be surprised. I want to I don't want to say it's Tanya, but I do think the setup thing with the gays is right. I think it's a long con. We saw that phone call with her husband saying she has no idea. Right. Uh, and we did see the photo of him, young him. In the not so rich gay's house, I think it's a con that he's yeah, Tanya's with not them. in that body bag. No, oh, you don't think so? It's a smaller body bag yeah, than Tanya. Yeah, it's a smaller body. That's why that's I was thinking. Probably true. That's why I was. I was thinking Tanya, but maybe Portia. I can't be. Portia. Oh, that's what I meant, Portia. You I think it's Portia. Portia. Yeah, yeah. No, I actually, I think it's, I think it's, it could be both Mia and Lucia, but I actually think it's probably going to be Lucia. Uh, and somebody else. I don't want to say the second person is. Um, yeah, that's it for my predictions. But <laughs> Do you not I, I want actually to say it think because you yeah. know no, who it is and you don't want to let I us actually know. Think, I actually think I actually think the Fab Four are going to go home intact. The Fab yeah. Four. Yeah, um, I yeah. really do. Getting on the plane together um, and just staring at each other. I think Lucia is <laughs> a good guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that would be sort of thematically. Follows along with the theme, right? BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The White Lotus Season 2 on HBO? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Season 2 of The White Lotus? Yeah, I'm going thumbs up with this. I mean, I know Toby didn't like it as much as the first season. I really enjoyed it. The, uh, you know, scenery, great. They did branch out. Obviously, the first season was done during COVID. So that was a way to creatively film a show in one location to be COVID safe. Now these people are branching off and leaving the resort, but I love all the quirky cast of characters. Tanya remains one of my favorites just because she's just totally wacky. And I like the trying to figure out, you know, knowing up front that somebody dies. I don't think that's a spoiler too much. And and trying to figure out who it's going to be and how it's going to play out. I just, this is a, a, was a fun and entertaining watch. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The White Lotus season two? I can't really give it a thumbs down, I guess. I'd give it a tepid thumbs up. I, I don't think this is as good as the first season. You know, I don't think there's anything, for instance, that's as sort of emotionally resonant as the plot with Tanya and her masseuse and getting her masseuse's hopes up that she's going to leave for a better life and then sort of 
unthinkingly dashing them. Like to me, that had much more impact than anything that goes on in this season. That being said, I'll, I'll watch the final episode. There's enough going on in the plots that that you're pretty much constantly interested, even if you know the characters aren't written that well. The acting is very good. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a tepid thumbs up. Um, you mean she should have opened that spa for poor people, as she says in the show? <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Kevin Flynn? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the White Lotus season two? Yeah, I'm going thumbs up. I uh, I like the White Lotus because it's always sort of a character study, some sort of big theme around uh, comedy drama vignettes here with an ensemble cast, different clusters here. It comes on gradually. You don't see it when they, they literally step off the boat, but it becomes more and more clear that the theme of the season has to do with toxic masculinity, and we see the men in different phases of that. And also for the, the women, we see them trying to find a way in this world to exert their own agency. So I thought those were really good. I, you know, as far as a, a prediction, we'll just remember that at the end of season one, which was about wealth and white privilege, wealth and white privilege won. Uh, when everybody, when the people who got on the plane and the people who were in the um, body bags. So my prediction will be that the patriarchy will somehow win the day. It always does, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be explicit. Yes. Um, yeah. Huge thumbs up for me. I actually like the season of White Lotus more than I like season one of the White Lotus. At the beginning, I was like, oh, no, I don't like it as much. And then by episode two, I was fully in. I love this season. And it isn't just because I've had like two or three Aperol spritzes every time I've watched every episode. Um, and it doesn't make me not want to go to Sicily. Let me just throw it out there, Kevin, put a pin in that for our future vacation. Yeah. Plans. I love the acting in the season. I think the ensemble cast is incredible. I think Aubrey Plaza in particular is an absolute revelation in this season. Um, I'm loving it. And I'm, I wish it could be eight episodes longer. I really do. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Huge thumbs up for me. Uh, oh, also, Michael Imperioli. I'm really glad he's having a moment. I really, really am. And I'm glad that like he's not having a moment that has anything to do with The Sopranos. Love Michael Imperioli. Huge thumbs up for me for The White Lotus season two. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call... The crime, crime of the week. The crime of the week. Thousands of soccer fans in Qatar and beyond thought they were watching the World Cup match between Germany and Japan on an illegal YouTube video stream. In reality, they were just watching two guys play the FIFA 23 video game. The fact that the picture looked pixelated and the commentary wasn't Vietnamese only convinced viewers that they were seeing some bootleg TV feed from Asia. To be fair, the graphics are really good, and the game is designed to look like a TV broadcast, complete with instant replays and close-up shots of players' reactions. Officials say pirate websites try to trick viewers so they can earn more money on advertising, and at least 40,000 people were duped. So panel, there's a sucker born online every minute. Lara Bricker, what is the next video game feed that will fool people? Oh boy. This is a good one. I have absolutely no idea. I'm going to say it's going to be, it's, we're going into winter. It's skiing. Um, I think some of the skiing games could be pretty accurate or, I mean, I think it could be a pickleball championship from uh, Toby Ball's backyard. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Toby Ball? What's we the next pickleball? video game? <laughs> What's the next video game we that's going to fool people? Donkey Kong. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? 
Oh, no, Space Invaders! I don't know. I think the next Minecraft live stream, people are going to think it's the Property Brothers, personally. I think it'd be great if they thought they're tuning into the Indianapolis 500 and it's Mario Kart. Yes. <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you and give you recommendations for the skiing video game live stream you should be watching, how can they find you on social media? They can find me at Lara Bricker. Tell you about what about you? Some pickleball video game uh, recommendations. How can they find you on social media? At Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn. I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show. You'll get Married with Podcast. You'll get Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. And you will get Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin P. Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we also ignore all the authentic Italian eateries around us for a week of eating in the hotel restaurant. Why the fuck would they do that? On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of these of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, the totally not toxic masculinity guy, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Want to do some fucking? <laughs> All right, let's let you. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. (laughs) 